Welcome to Square One, powered by FinTech TV. Today, we're joined by David Sachs, general partner at Craft Ventures. David is one of the most thoughtful executives in technology today. Having been the founding CEO of PayPal and founder of Yammer, David still holds the record for the fastest unicorn exit in Silicon Valley. David has taken his deep understanding of technology and shifted towards being an investor over the last five years. He's invested in over 25 unicorns. And in today's conversation, we'll dive deep into the fundamentals of building a generational business. So David, thrilled to have you on the show today. We had a great conversation earlier this year. And so I wanted to have you back for round two, right? In our first conversation, we went deep on censorship, big tech, and the political landscape. Today, I want to go deep into the fundamentals of building generational businesses. You've been at the helm of many of these businesses in the form of an investor, founder, and an entrepreneur. Uh, your first success story was PayPal. So let's start there. Tell me a little bit more about the PayPal story. How was that experience? And probably most interestingly for our audience, in your view, what are the most overlooked parts in the media uh, about that company? Yeah, well, great, great to be with you, Ramin. Um... Yeah, PayPal was sort of my first entrepreneurial experience. I got very lucky in a sense. Um, you know, Peter Thiel, who I had known from, you know, my time when I was a student at Stanford, uh, called me up and told me what he was working on. And um, it sounded pretty uh, interesting. And so, yeah, I ended up joining because of that. Um, you know, as a phenomenal team, I think something like 10. Uh, of the 10 to 12 of the, the original PayPal team, the so-called PayPal Mafia went on to create unicorn companies themselves. So it was just a pretty outstanding group. Let's talk about how you found product market fit at PayPal. Mm -hmm. You've coined that experience as the sharp strategy. What mm -hmm. does that phrase mean uh, and illustrate it for us in the context of PayPal? The business school textbooks want you to believe that the process of creating a company is very analytical. And you know what happens is the founders analyze some gap that's missing in the market and then you know from there from figuring out where where, where the the gap is in the market they'll they'll design a product offering and it's this very rational sort of analytical um, deductive process um, my experience with startups was very different which is you you don't start with a market analysis you actually start with a product idea and in the case of paypal the product idea was we're going to let people email money. You know why? Well, because email is really simple. It's hard to pay people. If you could let people email money, that seems like it would be a much simpler way to pay. And there must be people in the world who have a need for that. We had no idea who was going to use it, what the market was, what the business model was. You know, we declared that this product was going to be free. Um, so we had no pricing strategy. So all these sort of things that uh, business schools tell you that you need to have figured out in order to start a business, we didn't have any of that figured out. The only thing we, we knew was kind of this product idea. And, um, and so what we did is we launched it, we saw who was using it. And I'd say that the key moment of insight in terms of discovering product market fit was the day that we discovered that people were using PayPal on eBay. Uh, there are a bunch of eBay sellers using it. By the way, the, the, the way we, we figured this out was we received a customer support email from an eBay seller who was asking our permission to create a version of the PayPal logo uh, that she could put on her auctions. And, it, you know, ironically, it got sent to me, this email did not because I was the product leader of the company, 
but because I was also handling the company's legal work and they were wondering if this was like a trademark infringement or something like that. Uh, and so, you know, putting on my product hat, you know, I said, obviously, yes, we're going to let this eBay seller use our logo. Obviously, that's totally fine. But if she's taken the time to contact us and, and she had actually created her own sort of auction logo using using our PayPal logo, if she's put in all this time and energy to do this, how many other eBay sellers are there who are like this? And so we went to the eBay website and just searched for the word PayPal and eBay listings. And lo and behold, hundreds of eBay auctions popped up in the search. The word, the word PayPal was in the auctions because they would actually say, you can pay me with PayPal. That's how you know we could find it. And so right away that tipped us off to, wow, there's like actually a real market here for our product. And there were people in the company who were like, no, 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 we shouldn't, you know, that, that's not what we set up PayPal to do. You know, that's not, that's not who we should be going after. Uh, but, you know, my view, and it was very quickly the company's view was we should lean into this, you know, here's the market insight, right? We've discovered the market. You don't set out knowing everything about the market. You set out knowing what product you want to build. Then you discover the market insight. Then you lean into that and operationalize it. And the way we operationalized it was then we developed an automated tool to, you know, put the, to insert the PayPal logo on, on a eBay seller's auction. So, it, and it spread like wildfire all over the eBay marketplace. And then that created a bunch of fraud challenges. And so we learned how to deal with that. But the point is you discover the market as a result of being product first. Um, as opposed to understanding everything off the right off the bat. So let's talk about that spreading like viral wildfire bit. So you discover you discover the market kind of product first. I think one of the unique elements, David, of your you have two of your big wins, PayPal and Yammer, was you went from founding to a billion dollar exit in just under four years, right? So it's how quickly those businesses grew. You have a framework for thinking through virality in software businesses. Let's unpack that a little bit more. Yeah, well, I think you need to have a distribution strategy when you start uh, a company because it's a big web out there and it's very, very hard for people to find your product and it's very hard for you to find them. And so that's the problem with advertising is you don't even necessarily know who to advertise to. Um, so the question is, how are you going to get distribution for your product? And, um, you know, what, what the, the, so what I call it is the, the distribution trick. Uh, you you kind of have to have one. The, 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 the thing about distribution is that all of the standard distribution channels that you might use are very crowded. So if you're going to buy Facebook ads or Google AdWords or something like that, you're going to find that those channels are very crowded and very competitive. The thing I like to do or what I encourage is founders coming up with some sort of distribution trick, some innovation on distribution that nobody's thought of before. And that's going to allow you to grow at some sort of accelerated speed. Because if you do want to create a billion dollar company in four years or even in 10 years, that's going to require some extraordinary growth. So at PayPal, there are a whole series of distribution tricks that we learned. So number one was email virality. You could send money to somebody who didn't even have a PayPal account yet. You just put in their email address and then we notify them and then they can sign up after they've gotten the money. That was sort of trick number one. But the next trick was going viral on eBay. Once we discovered that that was our key market, we developed this trick of, of um, we just asked eBay sellers for their login. And then we would insert our PayPal logo all over their auctions. And you know that, that caused it to spread like wildfire. The other thing we did was we did sign up and referral bonuses. So if you signed up, 
you went through a bunch of verification hoops, we give you $10. And then if you recommend somebody else, they would get $10 too. Uh, and that helped, you know, put poor kerosene on the fire, you know, it was just explosive. So we did all of those things. And if you look at why I think a lot of the PayPal mafia companies, subsequent companies were so successful, is because they took this lesson of knowing they needed a distribution trick. And in fact, they use many of the PayPal distribution tricks in their next companies. LinkedIn and Yammer used email virality. YouTube used that same sort of um, embed strategy. They embedded YouTube videos on MySpace the same way that we embedded PayPal logos on eBay. So, you know, we all the, the these PayPal mafia companies did use um, some version of a distribution trick. I'm curious how you think about longevity. So what I mean by that is if we go back to the PayPal and the Yammer examples, both of those companies were acquired, you know, just under four years, right? And I think outside in, uh, from my perspective, especially in Yammer's case, uh, where you engineered this kind of bottoms up SaaS playbook, year four in many ways feels like it's just the beginning, right? So you exit for $1.2 billion, but what's not to say kind of actually you de-risk the business materially when you've gotten to that stage. And so 10 billion, 50 billion, et cetera, is in sight. I think the non-hypothetical version of this is PayPal, right? So PayPal is at a 300 plus billion market cap today. How do you think about longevity of these kinds of businesses that are really working? And then, you know, with your founders, how do you advise them on that point? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. We probably sold these companies too early. Um, I think one of the dilemmas um, about being a pioneer in a market is you don't really know how big that market's going to be. Um, it's a lot easier. Like you take a company like Zoom, um, you know, they 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 knew how big the market was because it's an existing market, and they came with a 10x better product and sort of dislodged uh, the incumbent, which I guess was the founder's previous product that he had created with WebEx. So, but th that that's the case where you have an existing market. I think with a new market, it's I think a common founder mistake is you have all the vision to create the product that creates this new market, but you don't realize how big it's going to be. And it's possible even as the founder to underestimate how big it's going to get. And so on a certain level, we knew that PayPal was going to be this, um, you know, world um, changing sort of online, you know, digital currency. But uh, we didn't realize that, you know, if we had done nothing, but just let the thing compound for 20 years, it'd be worth over 300 billion. Um, similarly, you know, when we sold Yammer back in 2012, um, you know, we thought one to two billion was sort of the, the best outcome for a SaaS company. I mean, that's kind of what people who are bullish about SaaS back then. I mean, we were the bullish ones. We were actually founding companies in the space. But people thought kind of two billion was what success looked like. And, um, you know, lo and behold, now the SaaS world has gotten, you know, the outcomes are 10x bigger than people expected. So, um, yeah, I mean, what I would tell founders is don't sell unless, um, I mean, I, I would be, I guess, it's much more careful about selling. You know, if things are fundamentally working, why sell? I want to switch gears, David, a little bit to the mechanics of how you actually build these fast growth businesses. So you have a methodology you call the cadence. Um, and before jumping into the cadence, we'll break that down. Break down the context for why startups even need a cadence. Well, what happens is in the early days of a startup, every, all the employees are either literally or virtually in a single room. You know, let's say, you know, a handful of people up to maybe 50 people, the founders can really tell them what to do and what to build. And what you'll see is the founders running around usually directing everyone at a task level. 
and and that will work reasonably well up to about 50 employees and it starts to break down it'll definitely break down above 100 employees because there's no way the founders can just touch everyone and manage them at such a micro level um the other thing that happens around 50 employees is that the org chart starts to break into silos so by then you're going to be looking to hire your VP of sales, your VP of marketing, and your VP of product. You're going to be building out your exec team. And so most employees of the company, it stops being flat and people live in their kind of narrow organizational silos. And as a result of that, they become a little bit disconnected from what's happening in the overall organization. They know maybe what's happening on their specific team, but they may not understand the, whole, the overall strategic priorities of the company, and they certainly don't know what the other groups in the company are working on. And what this breeds, I think, if you don't have some provide some sort of structure or scaffolding, is you will end up with, um, you know, an organization that feels disconnected from each other. So let's talk about the actual cadence. What are the components of this cadence? How do they interact with one another? Tell, uh, let's unpack that framework a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a very simple system that I kind of learn at PayPal and then I implemented it at Yammer. And what I realized is there's two big cycles in a, specifically in a SaaS company. And this could work for other kinds of companies, but I, I intended it for SaaS companies. There's sort of the sales finance system or cycle, and then there's the product marketing cycle. The product and marketing cycle, um, the, the reason why product and marketing are together is because most marketing news in a startup is generated by the product team, right? Those product releases should ultimately be driving the marketing calendar. And even in big companies like a Salesforce or a Tesla, it's usually a big product announcement is at the heart. Uh, it's a big launch event is at the heart of whatever big marketing they do. So, you know, Dreamforce, they will have lots of different announcements there, the partner announcements and so on, but they will always be introducing their new products when Elon does a big announcement at Tesla, it's usually unveiling a new product. It's a launch event. And it's tremendously motivating for the engineers to know that their work, that there's a deadline, right? That they are working towards a specific date. And at that date, the product will be unveiled to the world and the CEO is going on stage to present it. And they have to make that deadline. So yeah, the, your audience should check out my, uh, my blog on this if they want kind of the full detail. But um, people tell me that if they adopt the system, it really reigns in the chaos. Because again, it puts the whole company working in lockstep on a cadence, on a seasonal calendar. And um, yeah, it really, it, it really creates a sense of um, unity and purpose. Uh, everyone's working towards the same goal. The detail is really helpful. I've, I've advised a lot of those companies I've invested in those founders to actually check out the post and implement it in, into their execution. You've you've had this kind of philosophical piece around the cadence that you've said, which I really like, which is this is how you graduate from a chaotic startup into an unbeatable army. Um, I want to talk about some of the elements that make startups chaotic. Um, your friend and, and former colleague, Reid Hoffman, he has a book called Blitzscaling. Uh, but you have some perspectives on blitz failing. Uh, <laughs> so what does blitz failing mean to you? And, and how are we supposed to understand that, that framing? Well, it's not, in, it's not intended to be in opposition to blitz scaling. I mean, it's not an argument against blitz scaling. I'm a, I, I believe that companies should grow as fast as they can, but no faster. And uh, the blitz failing part is what can happen if you grow faster than you should. 
It's not to say you shouldn't grow as fast as you can, but you need to be aware of where high growth companies can go off the rails. And, um, and in that article, I laid out, I think, 11 ways that you will see high growth companies frequently implode. And, you know, it happens every year. There's, you know, a former high flying company that seems to go off the rails. And um, it can even happen right before the IPO, like with um, WeWork, they were supposed to have a giant IPO. And then the next thing you know, the company is basically imploding and then it needs a gigantic bailout. And, you know, maybe they've turned it around. I don't know. But, you know, it seems, something like that seems to happen every year. And, um, and I kind of lay out the most common causes of that. Yeah, I thought one of the, the most interesting elements from that piece and kind of really the element that was at the heart of that piece was founder psychology, right? So a, a lot of the other elements you laid out, you know, things like regulatory hurdles, so on and so forth, felt, you know, pretty, pretty specific to kind of how a business model, right, a company could get affected. Uh, but founder psychology, I found as the most interesting because I think a lot of what we do in technology today is we take the same founder characteristic and when the cycles are up, we celebrate that as aggressiveness, boldness, you know, tenacity, et cetera. Um, and when the cycles are down, we, you know, we're pejorative about it or we, you know, we say, you know, there's something wrong with this person, so on and so forth. Um, you've invested, I, I kind of mentioned at the outset, you've invested in you know, over 25 unicorns now. So obviously seen, you know, some of the best founders in the world and, uh, and these things aren't linear stories up into the right, right? I mean, at, at PayPal, you guys famously have documented, you almost ran out of money, right? So it's not always obvious that these things are gonna work. Um, how do you generally think about founder psychology? Uh, we can frame it in that context of blitz failing, but I'm, I'm just curious how you think about kind of that, the concept and, and the way I laid it out, which is it's the same fundamental characteristic, Yeah, just in the positive. Well, it, it's, it's often the same word. So you'll hear the word crazy being applied a lot to founders, you know, that founder, you know, that founder's crazy and it can be a compliment or a pejorative. It can mean both. Um, you know, when things are going well, it's a compliment. Um, but when things are going badly, it's, it becomes a pejorative. So the question is, well, how can you tell the difference between good, crazy and crazy? And the, the, the way in which founders need to be, I think a little crazy is that, they have to be far more aggressive than the average person. It just creating a startup involves a successful company involves so many setbacks and so much adversity that you're probably not going to make it unless you have, you know, an insane amount of resilience and um, you, you can, you know, you can take an incredible amount of setbacks. Um, so, and you've got to push really hard. If you want to build something really great, given how competitive the world is, you're going to have to be much more aggressive than the average person. But it is possible to be too aggressive and to kind of go off a cliff. Um, and so, you know, we tend to think of um, a quality like aggressiveness as following a normal distribution. And as long as you're in sort of the middle of it, that's a good place to be. That's not actually what the world looks like, I think for founders, I think the way it actually looks like is the, there are returns on aggressiveness that keep scaling. And the more aggressive you are, the more the returns scale until some point where you jump the shark and just do something a little too aggressive. And then it looks like that you go off a cliff. And so I think it's pretty important for hard charging founders to surround themselves with advisors who they're willing to listen to, who can kind of pull them back.
for making a fatal kind of mistake, um, you know, before going off a cliff. Seinfeld actually had a way of describing this with comics. He, he compared, you know, he was asked about, you know, famous comics who didn't, you know, live very long, you know, people like John Belushi and, you know, there were a lot of other ones. And there, there's a lot of comics who just couldn't handle it. And what he said, it, what Seinfeld said is that, you know, um, your talent level is like the horse that you ride in on in in the comedy business and there's some people who they have so much talent but they get bucked off the horse you know they can't control it they don't learn to control their talent they can't you know they can't ride that horse and um that that there there is something analogous i think in uh in the startup world you'll sometimes see a founder type founder personality type we call wild stallions they have a tremendous amount of talent but they might get bucked off their own horse and uh, it's pretty important for them to get some advice around the table that they can respect and listen to. When you're when you're evaluating these businesses, so there's a team component, there's a founder component, um, and then of course there's an idea component. Um, there's this adage in, in Silicon Valley, which is invest in startups that sound you know like they're a bad idea, but they're actually a good idea. Mm-hmm. Sounds super simple, uh, but very few can execute it. Namely, because for most folks, if it sounds like a bad idea, they perceive it to be a bad idea. Um, What are the guiding principles you've been able to put into practice? And this can be from kind of angel investing days and or to craft days. Um, Because David, the way when I look at investors that have made, you know, an early stage investment or, you know, kind of were one of the first five investors in, in a great company, fantastic, they did well. But I think when there's, you know, when you've invested in 20, 25, et cetera, like a track record like you have, there's something that's systematic there, right? And so I'm, I'm curious as to when you take that overlying framework, again, sounds very simple. It's the right framework, I, I think, and I'd love to hear your opinion on that, but it's very difficult to actually execute in practice. So what are the guiding principles that have kind of led you to exact, you know, against that type of framework? Yeah, I think a lot of investors psych themselves out wanting to be contrarian, you know, that, and then those are always the stories that you hear is when an investor made a bold contrarian bet, meaning a bet that nobody else was willing to make. It ended up being right. And it's true that those are the biggest payoffs. Um, if nobody else is willing to do it and you end up being massively right, there's going to be a huge payoff for that. But I think that most good venture investments are not like that. I think they generally tend to have multiple bidders. They do tend to uh, get multiple term sheets. As we're coming out of the pandemic, what, what are the opportunities you're most excited about, right? One, I think one way to frame that question is what are your thoughts and what's really changed because of COVID? You know, what do you believe to be transitory? But if we're kind of looking out from, you know, middle of 2021, what, what are the kinds of themes or uh, types of companies that you're most excited about these days? Well, I'm, I'm interested in the same types of companies I was interested in before COVID, which is, you know, I tend to focus on SaaS and specifically bottom-up SaaS. It's the same Yammer thesis um, that we kind of pioneered back in 2008, 2009, that, 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 these, that idea of spreading into an enterprise bottom up through the employees, uh, getting that kind of freemium adoption, and then using that as lead gen to then, you know, make the sale that that's still kind of my thesis about the disruption of enterprise software. On a, on a lighter note, David, I want to talk about the, the all in podcast. Uh, it's, my wife and I is kind of Friday Friday evening date. <laughs> Let your winners ride. Rain Man David Sachs. 
you've been outspoken about the need for companies, you know, to create wedges actually to take charge of their own narrative. Um, the All In Pod has, I think, you know, a million listeners fast on its way to 10 million. Um, I think it, the parallels are actually pretty interesting, right? Because I want you to talk, I want you to tell the audience how you think about gatekeeping for distribution uh, and what's uniquely going on in the landscape right now that actually provides opportunities for startups to take control of their own story. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, the the All In Pod was more of like a lark. I mean, it was something that, you know, I did with a few friends who I play poker with, hence the name. We did it, I think, starting in March of last year during COVID. Everyone was kind of locked in their their homes. And it's like, hey, let's do this pod. And um, as Tomas says, you know, we kept each other sane through COVID by, by doing this pod. And it somehow found an audience and people like it. And so it's encouraged us to keep going with it. Um, there is a big benefit to it, which is that we control distribution for our own ideas, and uh, which I think is really important now. Well, David, you've been incredibly gracious with your time once again. Thanks for round two of the discussion and uh, looking forward to having you on for round three in the future. So thanks again. Absolutely. Yeah, anytime. Thanks for me.